I would encourage you to keep your Bibles open up at Genesis 7 as we work our way through this flood narrative and learn what God has for us this week. Uh, For a few weeks now, really since we started to look at chapter 3, we've been building to a point. You can sense it in the passage. Evil had entered the world and had spiraled out of control. God was not going to sit back and let it continue, but the question was, when would God act? We learned last week that God had reached the point where he was sorrowful over his creation, for their hearts were wicked, we learned, continually. God pronounced his judgment. He was going to wipe everything out. Everything would be destroyed. However, there would be hope, and that hope would be found in Noah, the man who walked with God. Today, we reach that crescendo, that point we've been building to, the crescendo of the flood narrative, where we learn how God enacts his judgment and how the hope that we have got, we can be thankful for. By the end of the sermon, we'll have learned two key lessons, or at least I hope we've learned two key lessons. The first is that God's word can entirely be trusted, that God's word can entirely be trusted. And second, we should fear the judgment of God while rejoicing in his mercy. We should fear the judgment of God while rejoicing in his mercy. Uh, Clearly, with such a large passage, uh, we don't really have time to go verse by verse. Instead, let me break it into four sections, or if you will, four chapters of the story. I'll be referencing to chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4. Don't go to Genesis 1, 2, 3, and 4. This is the story of the flood split into four chapters. And and, and here's the four I think we can split it into. Uh, Number one, the entering of the ark. Number two, the flood itself. Number three, the waters subsiding. And then number four, finally ending with chapter eight, God's blessing. Let's first consider the process of Noah entering the ark. Uh, To give us context, uh, just look at the last verse of chapter six and see what it says. It says this, Noah did this. He did all that God had commanded him. God had spoken to Noah, commanding him to build an ark, for the world would soon be destroyed. We then go immediately into chapter 7 and verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I've seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. It seems on the surface that the dialogue between Noah and God has continued. End of chapter 6, Noah did all that God had told him to. Beginning of chapter 7, God continues to speak to Noah. Yet between chapter 6 and chapter 7, there is actually a hundred years in between. In these hundred years, Noah has faithfully built the ark to the exact specifications that God has commanded. Is that not striking? That even without continual encouragement from God, Noah has obeyed. Noah doesn't need God to tell him each day what he needs to do. He simply knows what he needs to do, and he's done it. That is the thing about God's commands. We should not need reminding or encouragement to do it. If we love the Lord, we obey the Lord. Now, interestingly, although the ESV and the NIV both translate verse 1 as stating, go into the ark, the King James Version reads, come into the ark. It's a subtle difference, but I think it's an important difference. To go usually means to leave and to go somewhere else. Yet to come means to come closer, to come into. 
If you said to someone, go to my home, they're leaving somewhere, going to your home. If you say to someone, come into my home, you're saying, I'm already here, so come on in. And that's what God was doing. God was beckoning Noah and his family into the ark to join the presence and blessing of God, to be guarded and protected by his mercy and to survive in the ark. I know it's a subtle difference, but I think there's wonderful connotations of come into the ark. I am here. I will save you. Salvation is with me. Come into the ark. It is an invite to Noah and his family. Uh, joining Noah on the ark would be seven pairs of clean animals and a pair of unclean animals. Uh, two significant aspects that are important to see here. First, the animals were mating pairs. God was providing hope. He was going to preserve all of the species. You see, there's an order to procreation, and that order is kept by God as he commands to bring male and female into the ark so that procreation could happen once the waters abate. And the second aspect is a little bit more complicated. How do we define what a clean animal is? We don't learn the difference, really, until Leviticus 11 that states what is clean and unclean, well after the flood has occurred. However, further to this, why is there going to be more clean animals than unclean? Maybe this is an early hint to the sacrificial system and the need to have more of certain animals in the land to be able to honor the sacrificial system. At this stage, if we just read the Bible right to this point and had no other thoughts beyond, we can only really speculate as why God is asking this. But what we know for certain is that God has commanded it and therefore it will be so. For a moment, consider chapter 7 and verse 10. After seven days, the water of the flood came upon the earth. God had reminded Noah of his need to come into the ark, to have all the animals in the ark, and told him what would come next, namely the 40 days of rain, 40 nights of rain. However, there's a pause. There's yet another seven days before the flood begins. I wonder what this seven days was for. Was it to organize what would be a crowded ark? Was it a final call to the people to repent from their sins? Was it potentially the burial ceremony of a recently deceased Methuselah? It's hard to say why God waited another seven days. However, what we can say is that God in his perfect timing knew there needed to be a gap. And he knew that there would needed to be a gap between the reminder to Noah and when the rain started. We must remember this in our own lives. When things don't happen quickly, or when matters seem to take a long time to resolve, or when things just go at a speed that we can't keep up with, we need to remember God's timing is always perfect in all matters of life. Why was there a seven days? We don't know, but God knows, and his timing is perfect. When the rain eventually came, it was time for the family to get themselves sorted. Chapter 7, verse 12. And rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. It was on the exact day that the rain began that Noah and his family were to come into the ark. And notice the wonderful picture we are given here. 
As judgment is executed, as destruction comes upon the earth, as the rain lashes down, God in his mercy provides salvation and therefore hope for the family of Noah. Yet that's, I think, only half of the picture. The other half is found when we look at Noah and his family themselves. Noah had obeyed for a hundred years. He had remained faithful throughout, even to the last hurdle of making sure the animals would come onto the ark. It was only when the rain started that Noah entered the ark. He didn't rush onto it, trying to grab hold of his safety early, and he didn't delay his entry, indifferent to the command of God. Noah entered the ark at the exact right moment. And there is complete trust here, complete faithfulness, and complete obedience as he literally follows the timeline of God. What a wonderful example that is to lean not on our own understanding, but to trust the word of God entirely, that we won't jump too quickly, that we won't delay, but we will wait for the moment where God says, go, and then we will go. If you're anything like me, you have a tendency to jump too quickly. And if you're anything like another family member of mine who doesn't live in England, but lives across a water, you have a tendency to delay your jump. We are all one of the other. We all struggle with it. Do we go into God's commands now or do we delay to God's commands? What we find in Noah is a perfect rest in the understanding that God will tell him to go and then he is to go. And look at verse 16. And those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded him and the Lord shut him in. And these final words are quite incredible, aren't you? There was one door, and from what we read, Noah was not responsible for closing it. The Lord himself closed the door, shutting all the animals in the family of Noah in. It was the Lord that secured their safety. It was at this moment we get a clear sign of two realities. Destruction is now imminent, and salvation has been provided. Destruction is imminent, the rain is coming, and salvation is provided the ark is ready to set sail. So we close out chapter one of the story and we head into chapter two, the flood itself. The flood occurred 1,655 years, one month and 17 days after God had created the world. In just over 1,500 years, the world had gone from complete perfection to completely wicked and evil. The judgment had been pronounced and now the full fury of the wrath of God would be seen. Turn your attention to verse 11 of chapter 7. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of heaven were opened. The waters above the firmament, below the firmament, would join together. There would be no separation as we see in Genesis 1-6. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. Well, this separation would now no longer occur. It would be this joining that would cause a global flood. The water above would fall in like rain. And as if the rain was held back by a window, as the window is opened, the deluge of water would drop on the earth. And then the waters from below would burst forth the land would split, there would be explosions as mountains and volcanoes would be destroyed as the waters raged upwards with such an intense pressure. The bursting forth and the falling down would be relentless. It would be like nothing the people have ever seen before. Verse 17, 
The flood continued for 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. 40 days. Can you imagine the level of destruction that 40 days of rain and 40 days of waters exploding up from the land would do? The earthquakes, the thunder and lightning, the tsunamis, and the incredible result of a worldwide flood. Can, can we not even just imagine the destruction? The waters rose so quickly that it was able to bear up a 14,000-ton ark that was able to float above the earth. And verse 18 here tells us that the waters prevailed. The word prevailed literally means overwhelmingly mighty. The waters were overwhelmingly mighty. They overwhelmed the world. Now, as a young child, um, we liked to go to the beach or we lived also on a farm and there was a little river, we call it in Scotland, a little burn, uh, a little river that ran by our house and I love to build a dam. You know, you get rocks and you build it up and you put, you know, sticks and you would try and make the water hold back. And you were always really proud when you had this dam built. Or maybe when you're at the beach, you build sandcastles and you have a moat and you run backwards and forwards to the sea to get the water to put in your moat. And you're really proud of what you have built. But we all know that sinking feeling when the dam breaks. And the frantic child is running around with all the stones trying to keep it going, but soon they give up. Why? Because the water is so powerful, there is nothing you can do to hold it back. Within seconds, your beautifully created dam or sandcastle is just gone. Take that thought and then take it to a global scale. And then I think you're only just beginning to think about the level of destruction that occurred on the earth. In fact, this word prevailed is repeated in verse 19 and in verse 20. It is noted in verse 19 that the waters prevailed mightily. In essence, it would translate as overwhelmingly, mightily, mighty. You can't even begin to describe in words how destructive this water was. This is incredible. It's such a ferocity, such a speed, such a deluge that the mountains were now covered, not just a little bit, but so much so that the ark could float above the mountains, above even the tallest mountain, the name Ararat, which stood at 17,000 feet, and it would be in no danger of touching this mountain. So have this picture in your mind. The waters above and the waters below have joined together. You cannot see any of the earth. It is below the water now. It is utterly destroyed. This 14,000-ton ark is floating across at least 17,000 feet above where the earth would be. But let's not miss the point. This was not a show of power to somehow display what water could do. This was punishment for sin. And the result is clear. Verse 21, and all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land and whose nostril was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals, creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. 
The people had turned to their wicked ways. Evil was in every man's heart. Judgment was pronounced. Punishment was given. And the result? All flesh died. Everything that had breath died. All things were blotted out. All life was gone on the earth. Verse 24 tells us that this went on for 150 days. The flood was truly and completely devastating for all of creation. For a period of time, Miriam and I lived in North Dakota in a, a northern state of the U.S., and there was a lot of snow across the winter, and it just kept building and building and building and building. And after three, four, five months, this snow was just rock-solid ice because it had been there for so long. But then it gave way to the summer, and it all went. But here we have 150 days. The flood was truly and completely devastating. After 150 days, after two seasons, the water was still there covering the earth. God had taken what we find in Genesis 1, a formless and void world, he created something wonderful. And now in Genesis 7, God takes this wonderful world and returns it to the chaos of being formless and void. This is what judgment over sin looks like. And with this, we close out chapter 2 of the story of the flood, giving way to chapter 3, where wonderfully the waters begin to subside. Go into chapter 8 and we'll look at verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained. God remembered Noah. It's not that God has forgotten him. God doesn't have a dodgy memory here. Rather, this is a Hebrew phrase that signifies that God would now go about acting on the behalf of Noah. So when you read God remembered and then someone's name, what God is now doing is acting upon their behalf. And so God does three things as he thinks of Noah. He caused the wind, he stopped the fountains, and he closed the windows. Through these actions, we learn that judgment had ceased. And the Lord would now start again. The time of destruction was over, and now it was time for life. It was man that had sinned. It was God that had judged. And now it would be God who would breathe life again into his creation. Verse 3. And the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. And the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. With no waters raging, the waters began to recede. You notice the sheer length of time. This was not going to be a fast process. It would take quite some time before the waters had reached a level where the world could start again. Large rivers would likely be left. Lakes would be found all over the place. And the receding water would continually reshape the land. And during all of this, we have a truly wonderful phrase. The ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Isn't that great that the ark comes to a stop? It shows destruction is over. 
But maybe you're thinking, Ross, you're maybe extending this out a little bit. How is that a truly wonderful phrase that the ark is stopped? I wouldn't say it's any more wonderful than any other phrase. Well, I, I want to read out quite a large quote from Henry Morris, and I think this is what makes it wonderful. This is what Henry uh, writes. It is significant that the ark is said to have rested, as though it had been laboring for five months in accomplishing its work of saving its occupants from sin and judgment. This is the second mention of rest in Scripture, the first being when God rested after his work of creation. As God finished his work of creation, and as the ark finished its mission, so Christ finished his work of salvation. The ark is a picture of what Jesus does for each of us. He is our means of salvation. In him is our promise of life. It is Jesus that says, come to me, those who are heavy laden. Outside of Jesus, there is only destruction and sin. The ark resting is a wonderful picture of Jesus completing his work and then resting in the heavenly realms as the salvation that he has provided for is now given to each one of us. So when we read the ark has rested, we get the connotations, and that is why we see it's such a wonderful phrase. Verse 6 through 14 in chapter 8 tells us all about the timing of leaving the ark. Just as God had timed the entering, so the leaving by the command of God would be timed. It took another seven months to bring the land back to a place where Noah and the family could walk again. In this seven-month period, the plants and the trees began to grow. The land was returning to something that resembled the blessing of creation. And can you imagine what Noah would have seen? It would have been a very different landscape than what he would have known before the year of the ark. After a process of sending birds in and out of the ark, we reach verse 15 in chapter 8. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you, all of flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may swarm off the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Upon the command of God, Noah, his family, and all the animals left the ark. They had been in the ark for 371 days. Half of this time was the visible destruction of the world. The other half, the slow receding and the slow revealing of the new world that awaited them. God had fulfilled his promise. Noah and his family were saved. This man that walked with God, that floated in a box on the raging waters of God's judgment was now safe on dry land. And before we close out the chapter three of the story, and before we get into chapter four of the story, for those who reject a worldwide flood, preferring to see it as a localized flood, where it's just in one section of the world, let me ask you just four very simple questions. Don't respond, just consider these later today. Is it not a waste of time and resources to build an ark if migration was simply an option? If God was going to flood this part of the land, why don't we just migrate to the other part of the land? Uh, secondly, how can a local flood cover the highest mountain in the world, but not cover the world itself? Thirdly, 
all of life, everything that had breath, died in the destruction of the world. Is this not true? Or do you suppose that the rest of the world was void and formless before the flood? And then fourth, does God not say that the entire world would be destroyed? And did he not follow through with his words? As we question a worldwide flood, we have some very difficult questions to answer. And you'll find that it's in fact easier to believe in a worldwide flood and the word of God than it is to answer these questions. But let's round out our time and let's go into the final part of the story, and that being the blessing of God. Verse 20 of chapter 8. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. I'm consistently blown away by Noah. The faithfulness that's on display is incredible. The focus was not on resettling the family, because where are they going to live? Or ensuring a home, because he's going to have to build one. Or even celebrating with a big party. Hey, we won, we're alive. The focus was on the Lord. And so Noah builds an altar, making a sacrifice before God, so that the Lord would be honored and glorified. This is what it means to walk with God, to see that every moment in life is a moment where we gaze upon the Creator and praise His holy name. And notice how Noah offered clean animals. This is the beauty of our relationship with God, that He wants our praise and He wants our adoration and He provides the means for us to do so. Yet it's always going to remain our choice our free will choice to give back to God what he's already given to us. In Noah, we have the free will choice in God-glorifying actions. And so God responds, verse 21. And when the Lord smelt the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. As we're in winter and as we see the snow, see God's promise there? Summer and winter. Know that when you wake up in the cold mornings, God has promised the cold mornings will subside as we go into summer. Because God created it that way. God wants it that way. But notice that it was after Noah worshipped God that the promise of God was given. Do you see that? Noah worships God first, then God gives his blessing. God seeks to bless, but he'll only bless those who seek after him. We've learned that wickedness will always receive judgment. Yet what we see here is that holiness will always be blessed by God. The Lord's promise is delivered in a covenant. It was known as a royal grant covenant, meaning a superior is promising benefits to one that is either a slave or a lower ranking to them. God is promising benefits to mankind, and that benefit would be that the world will never again go through such destruction and punishment. While the earth exists, the land will be plentiful. While the earth exists, mankind will be allowed to live. God knows the sins of mankind. Notice that. He says, mankind is sinful, is in their hearts from the day of their youth. But because of the faithfulness of Noah and his unwavering obedience, the Lord will seek to give mankind an opportunity to repent. God's promise is ultimately one of mercy and salvation. And with that, we close out chapter four of this wonderful flood narrative. Remember what I said at the beginning of these narratives, the immensity of the judgment 
and the wonderful beauty of God's mercy always go hand in hand. In our last few moments, let me give you uh, just some quick applications to take. Uh, Sure, you can go out there and uh, go into the real world, so to speak, and think, oh, I now know that the ark floated above Ararat. But what are we going to do with that as we work, as we study, as we live? Well, here's, here's my first point. God's plan and timing is perfect. God's plan and timing is perfect. Noah trusted God. And if we're honest, let's be honest with each other. We know the verses, don't we? Proverbs 16, 9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. We know that. Ecclesiastes 3, 1. For everything there is a season, a time for every matter under heaven. Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. I won't ask you to raise your hands, but I'm pretty sure if I said, raise your hand if you've ever used one of these verses to tell somebody to trust in the word of God or in his timing, I'm pretty sure a lot of hands would go in the air because we can rattle off these verses and we get to the point that Noah got to, that we trust God's timing. But that doesn't mean we believe with deep conviction God's timing and plan. How many of us are frustrated when plans don't go our way? How many of us panic when life circumstances change in very unexpected ways? How many of us fear the times that we're in? How many of us are arrogantly doing as we please, thinking God thinks nothing of it? How many of us doubt when the next pastor will come? How many of us are already making plans to get our own way in life and to have our own agendas achieved? Folks, to truly know and trust and believe in the planning and time of God, we can't just rattle off verses. We have to believe them with deep conviction. We don't plan our way. God does. We don't bemoan the season we're in, for it's the season that God has chosen us to be in. We don't trust the opinion of man, for it's understanding that we know doesn't stand. Because it's only the understanding provided by God that we should seek. At Lincoln Baptist is going into a change in season. And my encouragement is this. Like Noah, don't jump too early. Don't jump too late. Don't cower in fear, but walk in faithfulness. Don't discuss, debate, and argue. Rather, get on with being obedient. Ultimately, we put our trust in the plan and timing of God. Not just rattling off verses, but with deep conviction, actually believing in them. And I promise you, by the authority and truth of God's word, his plan and his timing never, ever fails. The second thing I want to say is that you can rest in Jesus. You can rest in Jesus. The ark resting and the picture that Henry Morris gave us is a great example of Christ resting after his work was completed on the cross. It's really captivated me this week in my preparation. Not only is the work finished, meaning through faith in Christ, we might be able to be saved from the destruction of sin, but in the work being finished, we can rest in him. I recently saw someone and was struck by how they looked. They had been going through quite a trial and their faces had it written all over They looked tired, frustrated, angry, gaunt, just really lacking any form of joy in their lives. Yes, indeed, trials do zap us of every good thing that we hold on to. But trials should never rob us of the joy that we receive in resting in Jesus. 
And when we talk about rest, I'm always uh, reminded of a Chuck Swindoll um, quote where he says this, in place of our exhaustion and spiritual fatigue, God will give us rest. All he asks is that we come to him, that we spend a while thinking about him, meditating on him, talking to him, listening in silence, occupying ourselves with him, totally and thoroughly lost in the hiding place of his presence. If you are exhausted today, if you're running around fighting battles, holding on to grievances and constantly battling against yourself and others, if you're finding the world a hard place to live in right now, if you're finding circumstances that you face are just too much, I beg of you, rest in the Lord. Look upon him. Experience the rest that is walking onto the ark of God's blessing and salvation in the chaos. Know what it means to be called into the rest of God and to walk freely into it. Some of you know that I, I'm not, I struggle with this myself and you kind of have to drag me kicking and screaming into rest. That's the issue though, isn't it? You don't rest when you're kicking and screaming. We should freely walk into the ark of God's rest. Sin says you must battle, battle to the bone, battle to the death. Rest in God says stop. Be silent. Let the Lord fight for you. So friends, I encourage you, rest in Jesus. And my final point is rejoice in the promises of God. Rejoice in the promises of God. The promise of God to Noah must have been like music to his ears, to know that he would never have to go through it again. More than that, his family would now live in peacetime, enjoying the pleasures that God has set before him. And with so many promises of God to rejoice in, all found in his word, and if you're following our daily reading program, guess what? We're nearing, what, 32, 33 days to go? We're getting close to the end, and you'll have read all of God's promises. But with so many promises, and with time well and truly gone from us, where do I go to? What promise shall we pick on today and rejoice in today? Well, it's found right at the end of Matthew's gospel. And it says this, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Can you grasp the magnitude of this promise? God is always with you. He is with you when you doubt, when you fear, when you question, when you weep. He is with you when you feel low, when you feel high, when you're excited, when you're depressed. He is with you when you step out in faith, when you get nervous, and when you seek after his plans. He is with us when we go about our day. He is with us when we seek our love for our families and when we struggle with our families. He is with us in our church members' meetings, in our services, in each one of our conversations. He is always with us. Why? Because he promised that he would be. And do you know what this promise means? It means we'll never be alone. Is that not something to rejoice in? that we're never, ever going to be alone, that in the world where everyone is searching for meaning, running around like headless chickens, never willing to be alone, never willing to slow down, never willing to stop, we as believers in Christ can sit, we can stand, we can lie, and we can close our eyes and know 
that we are in the presence of God because he has promised that we will never, ever be alone. Friends, that is a promise that we can hold on to. When I was writing this, I took some moments to just just sit back and, and, and rest in the Lord. And I was reminded of the story in 2019, just a few years ago, of 11 Christians in North Nigeria who were captured by ISIS and each told to denounce Christianity. Each in turn refused to do so and each in turn was shot or stabbed to death. In the moment where they knew their life would soon be over, in the moment where they knew if they would just, if they would just say that Christ isn't alive, if they would just give up their faith, they could live. In a moment where everything was on the line, I wonder if these words echoed in their minds. I am with you always to the end of the age. Their faith in these words are now honored as they have received the eternal prize of being in the presence of God for eternity. Folks, we don't have a gun to our heads this morning, but we do have the same challenge. Will you cling to the promises of Jesus as if your life depended on it? Noah did, Abraham did, Moses did, Jacob did, John the Baptist did, the Apostle Paul did. The question is, will you? Will you hold on to the promise that God is always with you and will you rejoice in it? Folks, what that means is when you're outside in the morning scraping off the ice and snow off your car and you're bemoaning how cold it is and how freezing it is and the door won't even open and the engine won't start and you can't be bothered and it's just easier to stay inside, switch the heating on, who can be bothered with church? You can say in that moment, God is with me. And so I rejoice. Scrape, 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 scrape. We chuckle, but is that not true? He's with us when we're scraping ice. He's with us when we're cold in the evening. He's with us when our heating's on. He's with us today over lunch. He's with us as we close out our service. He's with you when I depart in a week's time. He's with me when I get in a tin can and fly in the sky and I don't like flying. Do you know, God is always with us. Uh, just before the service, I said to somebody that we should be known for what we believe in, not what we're against. This is what I believe in, and I pray that you believe in it too, that we can rejoice in the promises of God. He is with us always. Let's pray. Father, I pray wholeheartedly, Father, that we would trust your word, not just rattle off verses, but that we would trust its timing in our lives and your plan. Father, I pray that as we do trust, that we would then rest it's so easy for us to say, God, I trust you. I trust your planning, but, but let me be involved. No, God, we know that you say, give it over to you. Those who are heavy laden, we can give it over to you and we can find rest. Father, help us rest. Help us rest in chaos. Help us be like Noah. Help us trust and rest. And Father, help us rejoice in promises. Uh, Father, we go into the Christmas season, and, and it's a strange season for us, Father, if we're honest. Uh, the world gets, like, really excited, everything's going on, everything's commercialized, and bang, it's there right in front of our faces. And as Christians, we can often pull back and we think, oh, maybe I shouldn't get involved, this is a bit too much worldly for me, it's a bit, it's a bit too much for this world, we shouldn't join in. But, Father, 
Let our response be this. Let our response be, I rejoice that Christ was born. And I rejoice that we celebrate it each year. And I rejoice it because through Christ, he has taken a broken sinner, turned my life upside down, turned me into something brand new, made me a child of God through salvation in his name. And I rejoice in every promise that I read in his word. And that's the word I read every day, that I stand on every day, that I'm excited about every day, that I devote myself to every day. Father, let our responses to life show that we trust, rest, and rejoice in you. Father, I pray this in your name. Amen.